This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Hi, welcome to the Investment Migration Report. My name is Abtin Vaziri. And I'm Priya Malik. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Investment Migration Report. And we would like to welcome our special guest on this episode, Aaron Grau from IIUSA. Hi, thanks for having me. So Aaron, it's been almost exactly a year since we started this podcast and you were our first guest. And I remember the first uh, episode that we recorded, we unfortunately got some really bad news that the regional center program was ending. And, you know, fast forward a year uh, and we may have some good news coming in today. So there's been a lot that's been happening and uh, wanted to uh, get your point of view in terms of some of the recent happenings. So why don't we start maybe just talking about uh, the reauthorization of the EV5 program? Well, yeah, you're right. It was about a year ago, which is hard to believe. Uh, time time definitely flies. Um, I mean, the reauthorization itself was a huge, huge win. Um, I understand, as we all do, that there's some complications and in interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, if we can take a step back for a second, and understand that we have a program now with a five-year runway, the stabilization uh, that that gives to the program and the confidence it gives to investors and stakeholders, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's nothing that the, that the program has ever had before. Uh, it is an extreme vote of confidence uh, from the U.S. Congress. And um, I believe that's still, that's still the banner headline, that's still the news. And Aaron, I know there's a lot of people out there that like to claim, you know, credit for getting this this program reauthorized and getting, you know, Congress to, to you know, issue this uh, piece of legislation, an act of Congress, you know, as hard as that is, and it's been taking seven years. I know you and your team have been instrumental on getting the various senators to talk, to get them to, to meet in the middle and to get this legislation done. Love to hear just, you know, some of the, how the sausage is made behind the scenes and some of the work that you and your staff at IOUSA, board of directors, all everyone involved have done to get us to this point? Well, we were and remain very grateful to be part of the conversation and at the table. Um, I think IIUSA brings some um, unique elements to the conversation, uh, not the least of which is um, the data and analysis that we have with regards to just about every aspect of the program, not the least of which would be its economic impact. Um, but I give big credit to um, our board of directors and our officers for making some pretty tough decisions down the line. Um, one of which I know will either live in infamy or 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 uh, quietly be heralded, and 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 that is the decision to. Um, dance with the one that brung us uh, and and continue to put our, our support behind Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy, who we felt a one were really the key players to getting anything done, whatever that thing may have been. Um, there was just no one else on Capitol Hill that was gonna be willing to put their shoulder to the grindstone the way those men did. And um, for better or worse, uh, IUSA recognized that that was the path um, to actually get a reauthorization. And that was a tough decision. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of, uh, you know, the way the board, um, you know, thoughtfully went through, you know, every aspect of what it meant. Um, and so we brought that element to the table as well. And it, I, I, I personally believe that at the end of the day, uh, our support of, uh, their version of the bill, um, was really one of the things that, that helped push it, push it over the finish line. There were a lot of people involved, um, probably too many to count, uh, but we were grateful to be part of it. And I think that our analysis and our data, as well as our decision as an industry representative to support what we felt was the only path forward, I think those are two big elements that, that but for, I mean, we may not have had a reauthorization. 
I mean, I think we're all really excited that the program has finally gotten reauthorized. And like you said, it's it's a five-year runway, which adds a lot of security. Um, that being said, I know at this time, there is a lot going on in the courts in terms of the interpretation of the reauthorization, USCIS interpretation, and many regional centers kind of fighting back on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how IIUSA is sort of participating on that front um, and what your thoughts are on everything that's going on right now? Um, well, uh, we were asked, um, you know, by a handful of plaintiffs if um, we would be willing to file an amicus brief um, in support of um, their lawsuit to... Um, well, I guess I should back up. Uh, we were asked to submit an amicus brief um, by the Bering Regional Center, um, an organization that was su that is suing the the USCIS, seeking an injunction um, against the the way they are interpreting uh, the, the the reauthorization. That is to say, requiring all. Uh, regional centers to redesignate uh, if they want to continue to to do business and raise money. And so we were asked as a representative of the industry to submit an amicus brief, uh, which we did. Um, I, I feel it was a, a persuasive document. I think the arguments made uh, in furtherance of the amicus uh, were persuasive. Um, we were very uh, flattered and happy to be part of the process. Um, and right now, we are waiting to hear what, what the court in the Northern District of California will do. As of now, there's no decision. Um, you could try to read the tea leaves or read between the lines if anybody you know listened to the hearing that took place, uh, was it about 10 days, maybe two weeks ago or so now. Um, but the truth of the matter is since we have nothing yet from the court, uh, that would be speculation. My hope is that um, uh, the Bering Regional Center's arguments, uh, our amicus brief and our arguments have persuaded the court to offer a, 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 um, a favorable solution, possibly even resolution uh, once and for all to the issue. But right now we just don't know. Um, and when that shoe drops, it will kick off a lot of other um, uh, next steps um, in, in the Northern District of California and, and and possibly in the district court in, in Washington, D.C. too. But right now, we just don't know. And Aaron, for, for those of us in the audience that may not be familiar, uh, basically, the, the EB-5 program was reauthorized for five years. Um, um, the president signed it into law March 15th to be, um, to be enacted within 60 days. So as of uh, May 15th, the EB-5 program was enacted. However, um, all the regional centers that, uh, you know, most regional centers operators and members of IIUSA had been operating had been taken away. And hence, there's two lawsuits to basically uh, get those regional centers back. And, you know, I can give you an example for us. For example, we have five regional centers at Brevet that we own and operate. Every year we pay 17000 you know, plus change annual filing fee, plus all the legal work and all the economic analysis work to show, you know, to, and, you know, the required documentation that the government needs, all of that we've done for several years. And now those regional centers are taken away and the USCIS is asking people to reapply, which wouldn't be as much as of a burden, except that it takes three to three and a half years to get a regional center approved. So hence a five-year program could basically be a, you know, mirage unless people get their regional centers back. Um, Aaron, I know um, a lot of people that watched uh, you know, the Zoom call that was with the court, uh, really, you know, people that were, you know, favorable of IUSA or weren't all thought that IUSA really saved the day. In my opinion, I thought GT, uh, Greenberg turned, butchered the lawsuit and, and the USCIS attorneys seemed unprepared and, and you know, it was very contradicting. Um, love to hear just kind of your thoughts of, you know, joining the lawsuit and, and you know, from lack of better terms, I heard that, you know, IUSA lawyer really saved the day in that case. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, the, the lawyers representing IAUSA and the amicus um, are hands down, uh, they're, they're stellar. Um, very smart guys. Uh, Ron Clasco um, and Paul Hughes, uh, they deserve all the credit uh, for developing the arguments and presenting them in a very cogent um, way. 
they did identify some arguments that um, the, the original plaintiff bearing uh, did not identify. Um, so I think everybody was very pleased to see those arguments articulated in, in the amicus brief, as well as um, in, in the oral uh, argument that, that Mr. Hughes provided. Um, and I'd like to think that, you know, come what may, that those arguments um, did help the cause, uh, did help, you know, persuade the judge. Um, I mean, unless the judge comes out and, you know, says this is exactly what I think and this is why I think it will never know. I think that um, ultimately, you know, all I, my eyes and I think all eyes are actually on uh, the court to, to hear what he's actually going to say. Um, I note that um, in the oral last hearing that, that took place, Judge Chabria came out and said, you know, pretty clearly that in his opinion, um, uh, it's possible that USCIS had committed what he referred to as legal error. Uh, in stating that all the regional centers need to uh, redesignate themselves. He did qualify it, though, by saying that ultimately he felt that the, the law, the RIA, was ambiguous. And although it would be um, legal error to interpret it, you know, definitively the way um, um, USCIS did, um, he was still debating, you know, the proper way to interpret it. So, um, I mean, that's what I heard on that on that hearing, and um, yeah, well, I mean, like I like I said before, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what what the court is taking into consideration, and we're just going to have to wait to see what what he ultimately says. Does Does the USCIS hate EB five? That's that was the one of the, one of the questions that the judge asked. I mean, it's, it's a valid question because I, I used to think absolutely not. The USCIS obviously loves EB-5 because EB-5 pays most of their budget. But I'm starting to think maybe maybe the judge is right. Maybe the USCIS does hate EB-5. Yeah, I mean, this has been going on for such a long time. And it, it seems like there are always certain roadblocks that come up from USCIS, certain inefficiencies. So I think everyone, especially even on the investor side, people who've been watching this unfold for the last... 10 years almost um, are sort of getting that sense as well. So what's your opinion on that? Well, I'm going to tread lightly. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I would say that USCIS hates EB-5. I mean, I think we can all admit though, that it's a complicated program. Um, as a matter of uh, immigration, it is, it, it, it includes not only the process of, you know, vetting and an immigration application, but I mean, USCIS is also tasked with, um, you know, managing or monitoring or overseeing some fairly sophisticated investment projects that that arguably, at least from my perspective, it really has no business uh, doing it. And it, it, folks at USCIS might even agree with me that, you know, the Department of Homeland Security and USCIS is not perhaps the most appropriate organization to uh, manage um, investment deals and real estate development projects, especially the nature of which, you know, typically involve uh, EB-5 investment. And I mean, I had I had suggested um, somewhat in jest, and then as I gave it some more thought, maybe, maybe not so much in jest, that um, EB-5 possibly not even be considered an employment-based visa any longer. Really, it might be considered an investment-based visa um and and perhaps down the road we can see some reorganization as to how the administration manages an investment-based visa um i mean i think arguably the department of commerce has a role to play clearly the securities and exchange commission uh has a role to play and um it's not a traditional eb it's not a traditional employment-based uh pathway i mean if you think of H-1B as employment-based, you're talking about a visa and a job. Um, here you're talking about a visa and the creation of at least 10 jobs for other people. Um, that's a pretty big distinction. Um, and the complexities that go along with overseeing and managing that sort of program are, they're broad. I mean, as we, as I just mentioned, I mean, there's a role for at least a handful of other agencies. And so, does USCIS hate 
EB5? I don't know that I would say they would hate EB5. I would I would hazard a guess that it's probably a challenge for them. Um, and I wonder to what extent there might be opportunities to ease that burden um, by recategorizing this as something more akin to an investment base than an employment base. Of course, you know, you know where the road, good intentions pave the road to you know where. And I mean, you could be biting off a whole heck of a lot that we never intended to to address. And I mean, and the idea of bringing in yet another federal agency into this process uh, might be equally disruptive, but I don't know. There, there, there's a lot of moving parts to this program. And um, I don't know that they hate us, I, but I do think they find us a challenge. Uh, well, let's let's talk about uh, you know the positives. You know, one of the really important things I think that came out of this uh, this le uh, legislation is the the idea that investors could you know be in the U.S. under lawful other visas, whether it's an employment-based visa, whether it's a tourist visa, uh, even a student visa, and they could change status and re remain in the U.S. and have work authorization. I mean, you know, there are countries like China historically where, you know, there's been visa backlogs and, you know, the wait times could be as long as 10, 12 years. This this is a game changer. This is something that, you know, will make it more palatable, even for investors from China, where they could stay in the U.S. on another visa category. Some some investors, you know, some Chinese nationals have 10-year uh, visas where they could you know, come and go as they please. So that really changes the game. You know, I'd love to love to hear your your, your thoughts on that and uh, and some of the positives of, of the new legislation. Well, if I'm not mistaken, this is the concept of um, concurrent uh, filing. <clears throat> um, and I'll admit off the bat uh, that that uh, my expertise is really honed more towards association management uh, than it is immigration law. I leave that to people much smarter than I. But I haven't heard one person, um, whether in the U.S. or in conversations that I was privy to and listening to in my recent trip to India, I haven't heard one person say, are you kidding? This isn't going to work. This is a bad idea. In fact, it is the exact opposite. Uh, the concept and possibilities of concurrent filing are really uh, piquing some interest and raising some interested eyebrows um, among investors and potential investors. And it, it is it is a very positive uh, development. And, you know, my hat's off once again to the people who drafted the bill responsible for uh, for introducing and managing it, um, as well as everybody who was around the table who saw this as a as a positive for the industry. And you're right, Abtin. I mean, both you guys, I'm glad to hear you focusing on it. It is a big win. Um, and and I think once this redesignation issue is um, addressed and taken care of. It's something that I think everybody in the EB-5 ecosystem is really going to be able to leverage and take advantage of, um, and for good reason. So very big positive. It was a big win that came out of all of this in addition to the five-year reauthorization timeline. And yeah, glad to see it was there. And I'm sure there's lots of other um, positive things that have occurred in terms of the amendments that were made and the reauthorization. Can you touch on some of those other things? For example, um, grandfathering of previous applications, oversight and security for investors. I think these are all positive things that, you know, might get clouded over with everything that's going on in terms of litigation and investors waiting patiently to be able to see some progress in the program. Um, so maybe if we can touch on some of those really positive things that are going to impact investors in a good way. I look at this entire reauthorization as a maturation of the program. Um, this reauthorization for five years, in, as you said, uh, includes a lot of um, uh, what were colloquially called integrity measures, but I mean, they're really protections for good faith investors and assurances that there's additional transparency in the program. I'll touch on them in a moment, but I think from a, a big picture, this reauthorization is a step uh, of maturation of the program toward what I feel will ultimately be a permanent EB-5 program, such that even in five years, um, we may have an opportunity if we cross our T's and dot our I's and behave ourselves, uh, we may have an opportunity to have a conversation to make this program 
permanent as opposed to seeking another five-year reauthorization. I don't know that for sure, but what I'm saying is, is that the changes that were made in the law were done in the context of understanding how the program behaved previously and how it can better uh, behave going forward. And to me, that is a sign of maturation and the U.S. Congress's recognition that A, this is a program worth saving, worth improving and strengthening, and hopefully in doing so at some point in the future, worth making permanent. Um, now, to your point, I mean, some of those, some of those issues, some of those good things that happened, um, you know, not everybody agreed that they were good. I mean, there, there were a handful of folks who quietly really pushed back hard on, on some of the, some of the new requirements of transparency and, um, the, the requirement for uh, broker dealers to register with the Department of Homeland Security, but all of them, and including and especially the grandfathering position, which protects good faith investors in the event that this program does lapse again, all of them were done with, with the intention of protecting the investor, recognizing um, not so subtly that the people making these investments are, um, far away from where their investment is going to take place. Uh, and as sophisticated as they are, don't necessarily have eyes and ears where they always need to be. Um, and protecting them and assuring their benefits when they do behave in good faith, and 99.9% .9 of them do, um, helps the whole program because it's a recognition that these investors are part of the ecosystem writ large. It's always interesting to me to take a step back and realize that if it wasn't for the investors, the regional centers wouldn't exist. And if it wasn't for the regional centers, the investors would have a very difficult time executing their obligations. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. And although, you know, there are there were there were great strides and effort and, and successes made to protect the investor as opposed to prop up a regional center whatever that might mean. I think everybody needs to realize that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And, and if, if you have an ecosystem that is strengthened, whether it's you know part A, part B, or part C, all of the boats are going to rise. Um, and so the grandfathering, the transparency, <clears throat> the broker-dealer registrations, all of it was done um, with the intent to improve and mature a program that I believe ultimately will benefit from a permanent authorization. And when that happens, um, so many other good things will begin to cascade, not the least of which might be uh, additional visas and of course the economic development impact that this program has across the country. So there were quite a number of, of, of improvements. You touched on a handful of them. Um, I'm grateful for all of them because uh, they focus on an important part of this ecosystem, uh, deservedly so. So Aaron, I just got back from Brussels where I represented EB5 and IAUSA in a panel there. And, you know, there's so many different uh, investment migration programs now, I think north of 40, and they all have different requirements. Some of them are easier than EB5, some of them are harder. Some of them have, you know, language requirements and you have to take a 50 hour language course. Others, you have to stay in those countries. And some of them, you know, are basically just just work authorizations. You don't ever become a, uh, a citizen, or you know, uh, you don't have the same rights and responsibilities that the, the, the local, you know, uh, born citizen has. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the EB five program is a zero sum game, and we'll have some some of those other programs on our show, and we'll explain some of these other programs. But you know, it is a zero sum game, and you know, the money that's not coming to the U.S. is going to these various other programs, and when the EB-5 program started in the early 90s, there were only a few other programs today, you know, north of 40 programs. Why, why, you know, why not make this easier? Why not get, you know, more, more people into the United States? Why, 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 why is the hesitation, do you think, from, from Congress or from, from the USCIS? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have an answer. Uh, um, you know, so much of, you know, I say frequently that, that, uh, EB-5 is an immigration program that's painted with a, an economic, no, it's an economic development program that's painted with an immigration brush. 
And in the United States, you know, for better or worse, um, in my opinion, worse, um, we have an immigration complex, I'll call it. Um, there are elements uh, of xenophobia in the United States um, that, uh, you know, percolate into, you know, nationalism and, uh, and, and we're not unique in that regard, but the United States is certainly um, um, prominent uh, in that regard. And um, why that's not, um, why, why that's the case, I, I can't explain, I don't know, but I mean, if we, we, if we could do away with that and recognize that, you know, uh, immigrants are the lifeblood of this country, um, and, and uh, sort of step away from concerns of the other and realize that, um, you know, variety is the spice of life, if you will, that the immigrant community in the United States goes back to the beginning of the United States, um, but for the immigrant community, there wouldn't be a United States. Uh, and it's really what makes us um, a very special place. Um, that is one perspective. I believe in it sincerely. And I think if that perspective took a stronger route, we would have an easier time uh, with the EB-5 program. Um, we would have an easier time with immigration policy across the board. But um, that's just one guy's opinion um, on, a, on a pretty broad and complex issue. Why? I, I recall very clearly sitting down in a, a Senate meeting, I don't know, two, three years ago at this point, and I was asking rhetorically of staff there, I said, why doesn't anybody get it? Why doesn't anybody understand that, you know, we're talking about, you know, millions and millions of dollars of other people's money, you know, that comes into the United States to create jobs and to, uh, you know, infuse develop, you know, economic development. Um, what's the hesitancy? What, what's the problem here? I mean, shouldn't this be, you know, expanded to 20, 30,000 visas? Don't you understand what we're putting on the table here? And um, the reaction was telling, and I'll never forget it, and I'll never name names either, but uh, I was given sort of a pat on the head. And uh, there, there, Aaron, you've got some, you've got some great ideas. That, that's very nice, very quaint of you, Aaron, to, to think of it that way. But uh, let, let the big kids talk at the table now. Um, it was disheartening. Um, because I think it was dead wrong. Um, and so we've got an uphill battle in that regard, um, as do other immigrant um, and visa categories. So I don't know, Abtine, that's a really big question with um, really big answers and conversations that I can offer only so much. You know, on, on my panel in Brussels, I, I opened up with, you know, obviously talking about all the various programs, so many great programs around the world in the Caribbean and, you know, in, in, in the Middle East and in the EU. And I opened up with, you know, we're the United States and we're a nation of 330 million immigrants and some of the most high, you know, the largest companies, the largest tech companies, the largest companies founded in the United States were founded by immigrants, not second generation, third generation, yeah. but actual immigrants. And I actually just read a statistics that 55% of all unicorn tech companies have been founded by immigrants. So those are big statistics. You know, we were, everything in this country was built by immigrants. We just, you know, we just got to roll up our sleeve and make it easier for these immigrants to come here and help us build, you know, rebuild this yeah. country. You know, it, it's a cycle too. And I mean, you can quickly get into conversations that in my opinion, seem to go nowhere. Like they're taking our jobs. And meanwhile, EB-5 is doing the exact opposite. It's actually creating jobs. Creating jobs. Um, so I don't know. Sometimes you feel like uh, you feel a bit like Sisyphus. You know, you roll that rock up the hill just to have it come back down. But you have to keep at it. Um, IIUSA is doing that. I know you guys are doing that. And I'm grateful. And, you know, we'll keep fighting the fight. There's good stuff. And in, in terms of the, um, you know, the comment you made about the number of visas that are available, I know that during COVID, there were quite a lot of visas that were unused. And there has been some discussion in terms of utilizing some of those visas to relieve a little bit of the backlog in EB-5 
or other categories as well, but at least a little bit towards EB5, for example, the Chinese retrogression and, and other countries as well. Um, have you heard anything about those discussions? I think the number was something like 30 or 40,000 unused visas, um, whether they're going to let them expire or actually roll them over to use them for the program. Have you heard anything about that? I have not, unfortunately, other than, other than that, that issue is there um, and that there are those unused visas. Um, IAUSA has reached out to the State Department, um, but uh, we have not heard back or had a meaningful dialogue on that matter. Um, so I wish I wish I could offer something insightful, uh, but unfortunately, I guess you guys have your hands full though with everything that's going on. Well, other topics. We we try to walk and chew gum at the same time, but sometimes. Um, I, I, I just don't have any additional insight on that particular issue. I know it's there. We're focused on it. And if something were to pop and there were some movement, clearly we would have some, some information to share. But as of now, I, I just don't know. So Aaron, you know, just for the purpose of our audience, uh, you know, in terms of the, the reauthorization of the, the regional centers, uh, there are two different you know, lawsuits, one bearing that IAUSA has joined and then the separate one that's representing IAUSA and a few other regional centers. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So if you don't mind just kind of going over what, you know, what each lawsuit is, where it is in its life and uh, who they're representing in each lawsuit. Um, okay, I'll do my best. Um, in the Northern District of California, uh, the Bering Regional Center uh, filed a lawsuit seeking a preliminary injunction against the way that USCIS was interpreting the RIA requiring all regional centers to redesignate. Um, and it really, I mean, if you read between the lines in that, and I don't want to put any words in Baring's mouth, but it's really not, let me just say this, I'm not putting words in their mouth. This is my opinion. It's really not a question of redesignation. It's a question of how long an adjudication would take to secure redesignation. I don't think anybody in the industry is going to squawk too much uh, about a, a process so long as that process uh, happens very quickly. And in any event, um, that was the bearing uh, lawsuit um, and IIUSA uh, filed an amicus motion in support of Baring's position and was given leave to make an argument, oral argument as well in that. And um, that's where we had mentioned before, in my opinion, I think Paul Hughes and Ron Clasco did a fantastic job, were very persuasive, um, got the court's attention and got them thinking about some, some other matters uh, and issues that were not initially raised uh, in the bearing complaint. Um, right now, um, IIUSA uh, is also seeking leave to um, be a plaintiff in that case uh, directly to intervene as a plaintiff, but that hasn't been granted. And um, again, we're waiting to see what, what the court will do. We, we, we just don't know. I'm proud of what Paul and Ron put together. I think it was persuasive, but I, it's in the court's hands right now and, and we just don't know uh, what, what will come of it. Um, in the interim, another similar lawsuit was filed in the district court for the District of Columbia. Um, and that that, that doesn't involve IAUSA, um, and there's really nothing happening there. Um, the complaint was filed. Um, it also contains, in my opinion, persuasive arguments and facts, uh, but I think all eyes are still in the Northern District of California. I, I, I'm not gonna pretend to under, understand the legal strategies that might be involved if the court rules this way or the court rules that way, um, but all eyes are on the Northern District of California because I'm sure that when, they, when it does rule, um, and hopefully it's a very favorable ruling, it will likely dictate what, whatever the next steps are. And I just, I, I I'm, I'm just an association manager guy. I, I can't, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what all that might entail. Um, but those are the facts, you know, you've got, you've got two cases. Um, the bearing case is, is further along. Uh, as you know, and, and the case that's been filed in, in District Court of District of Columbia is waiting next steps. And um, the USCIS, I believe in the court case, admitted that in June of last year, 
in their opinion, the program never expired, only the set-asides expired. And then they contradicted themselves by saying that it is their policy not to adjudicate when there's no visa set-asides, which is not true. And then they also contradicted themselves and said that uh, you actually don't need a regional center uh, when you go through the IA-29 process, which is completely against every policy that they've had in the last 10 years. What are, what are your thoughts on those? Um, well, I mean, I, I would agree with with your analysis. Um, it seems that USCIS is trying to have its cake and eat it too. Um, I'm very confused by their, their position. Um, I'm confused by why they don't understand that their position is ultimately destructive. Um, but beyond that, I, I, I think the best, I think the best thing that could have happened to push back on those positions, uh, were the arguments that Bering and IUSA's amicus put forward. Um, and we're just going to have to wait and see how they, how they play out. I, I mean, some of that might go back to the question that one of you guys asked earlier was just a, does USCIS hate EB-5? I don't think they hate EB-5, but I mean, what you pointed out and the contradictions that are there and how they're interpreting RIA might just speak to how complicated the program is and not necessarily that they hate us, but that they find it a challenge. And um, we just, we, 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 outside of any lawsuit, um, I am, I, on behalf of IUSA and the industry, I'm desperate for an opportunity for a meaningful bilateral conversation with CIS to help them understand the industry perspectives. And um, they haven't been willing to do that. And I don't know why. I'm sure you guys and maybe many listeners, you know, tuned into their listening sessions, um, which I found utterly insulting. Um, I said as much in emails and letters to USCIS, um, but 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 that that and then that that's what needs that's what needs to change in order to address some of the concerns that you just raised. I mean, if we could just have a conversation with them, without them being fearful of whatever they're fearful of, um, and explain how this is working, and why their interpretation doesn't work. I mean. What's wrong with the conversation? I, I've never understood that. You want to, if USCIS wants to record us, record us. You want to, you know, make it public and, and invite the whole world, invite the whole world and put us on the record. We just want to have a conversation with you guys and explain that you are, you are contradicting yourself, as you point out, Epteen. Um, and here's where things can go better. And here's how we can help you meet your goals. But there's just this, intransigence that I don't understand. Do you think the reluctance with USCIS comes um, with the the well-known fact that they are pretty inefficient, understaffed, overworked, um, and perhaps this plays a role on their priorities in terms of having these conversations and, and trying to be understanding? Um, it, it, yes. <laughs> I, yes. Um, so it's not so much the sentiment that they, you know, that they hate the program or that they um, are just reluctant to sort of be open to anything, but it's just that they have so much going on and they're so inefficient already and understaffed and overworked that it just doesn't happen as smoothly as we would all hope. Yeah, Priya, good for you. Um, and shame on me a little bit. I, I do think there is a place to offer the benefit of the doubt uh, to USCIS because one of the things that they mentioned on one of the listening sessions is that they are, DHS in any event, is at least 4,000 people understaffed. Um, mm -hmm. And when you combine that with the complexity of the EB-5 program, and what it takes to adjudicate petitions and evaluate and maintain oversight. And then throw on top of that every other immigration issue that DHS and USCIS are addressing. Everything from the southern border to um, you know, amnesty issues and um, uh, Afghan um, refugee issues, um, Ukrainian uh, refugees. I mean, the number of issues that they have are are um, 
mind-boggling. And, and to tackle them with uh, insufficient resources, yeah, I think you're right and good for you for pointing it out. I mean, um, they're, in, they're in a tough spot and um, it's probably very difficult to, to handle all of that efficiently. Well, we know it is. Well, the other part of that is that USCIS is self-funded. So all of their funding comes from application fees. And, you know, I, I would guess a very large chunk, if not the lion's share of their budget, comes from filing fees from the regional centers and from EB-5 investors. And, you know, how, how, are, how are they not allocating resources to this program that pays for them to keep the lights on? That is a good question, Abtine. Um, I don't know the answer. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that um, perhaps a lot of the offices within USCIS might be underfunded and that um, perhaps there's a little bit of robbing Peter to pay Paul, um, which leaves EB-5 uh, understaffed. I don't know the answer, uh, but you make a very good point. Um, you know, I, EB-5 uh, pays its freight. You know, I mean, um, so I don't know. Good question. One that perhaps we'll have an answer to down the road. Um, but uh, not right now. I mean, we, we hear, you know, rumors that the USCIS just assumes that this is a, you know, high net worth millionaire, billionaire program. And these people are all just, you know, multi, multi millionaires. But the reality of it is, you know, Priya can attest to this, you know, working with investors on a, on a daily basis. A lot of these are, you know, middle-class families that are selling their homes, selling their businesses in order for their kids to have the American dream. And in exchange for, you know, creating jobs and creating foreign direct investment for five, six, 10 years, you know, they're able to provide their family for this American dream. But, you know, the USCIS in one side basically says, Hey, we don't want this to be a millionaire program. It's not fair that some people could invest five hundred thousand. But then, on the other side of it, they keep making it more and more expensive to try to force it to be a millionaire program. So again, there's contradiction there. But you know, like Priya, I'd love to hear your point point of view too. Well, this isn't you know the, you know we do have a very small percentage of people that have very high net worth, but the majority of people that invest are just everyday normal middle class families that just want the American dream, and they they have been shunned away from all the different various programs, whether it's H1B and, or, you know, uh, you know, having a family member sponsor you, having a company sponsor you. This is the only way you can sponsor yourself where the faith is in your own hands is the EB-5 program. Yeah. And, and, you know, the more I kind of, I mean, I've been doing the EB-5 program with investors. I've been doing the EB-5 program for 12 years and with investors specifically for nine years. And then over time I've, become, you know, involved in some of the other global programs that are available, like Portugal and Canada. And so I've had an opportunity to sort of see these immigration systems in action as well. And I can say that although we think the U.S. is, you know, inefficient and it might be in many ways, it's probably one of the more difficult countries to gain immigration to. And especially now that they're making a program like the EB-5 program, which should be widely available, they're making that more expensive and more difficult. There definitely are a lot of other immigration uh, programs or a lot of other policies within, within other countries that are make their immigration systems highly inefficient as well. Um, speaking from an investor's perspective, you know, like I mentioned on a previous episode, 99% of our investors are just regular families who utilize their every last savings. Um, and they, they take that, they take that risk of putting it into an essentially in an at risk program in order to get, um, the opportunity at a better future. Um, what I've been surprised at seeing is that when the price of the program went up to 900,000 back in 2019, there was such a sharp decline in interest in the program. Nobody wanted to do EB-5 anymore. Um, this time around, the program has gone up to 800,000, so $100,000 difference. And we thought there would be, again, this huge sharp decline. And definitely the numbers are lower and we'll see how it all plays out when people can actually apply. Um, 
but the interest is still there compared to when the price went up to 900,000. Um, at 800,000, the interest is still there. People are still trying to make it happen, trying to make it work, trying to get their funds together. And I think that just speaks to the fact that people want to go to the U.S. and they want that opportunity and they, they want that better future for their families and they'll make it happen in any way they can. So it's definitely not, you know, a millionaire's program. It is for the regular person that just wants a chance at a better future for their children and their family. Um, and I think everything that we've seen really speaks to that. So it is a little heartbreaking when we can't see you know, the program just come together or USCIS kind of get it together to help these people or allow these people this opportunity. That's that's kind of my my opinion on just watching what's unfolded since 2013 with, with the EB-5 program. Aaron, I'm going to jump to asking a couple of tough questions. Hope you're ready. So uh, I know these um, all, all, you know, they've all been softballs so far. These have all been softballs. No, I know, you know, I know your hands were tied, you know, when you're negotiating with Congress and, you know, you're, you're, you're on a daily basis talking to the staff, uh, Senate staff on both sides of the aisle, the people that, you know, and you have to make peace between the Senate staff to get, get us to this point. But, you know, a lot of investors, you know, uh, you know, put, put us in a, in a tough light and they wanted to know what's going on. And, they wanted IIUSA and other organizations to put out updates, but your hands were tied because obviously you're in the middle of negotiations. And if you leak what's going on in negotiations, Congress will have no respect for you. And then separately, you know, there's all these different, uh, you know, uh, investor organizations. There's, you know, several organizations that are very heavy with Indian investors, others, a couple of organizations very heavy with, uh, with Chinese investors. And, you know, the, the, you know, of course they don't understand that, you know, in the middle of negotiations, you can't give updates. But what are your thoughts about having someone like IIUSA or an organization like IIUSA to, you know, start an investor organization to also, you know, hear the voices of investors? Because there's lots of investors out there that are frustrated. And some of these organizations are putting out a lot of rumors, and a lot of information that's oh, yeah. frankly not true. And to really to, to kind of put the rumors to rest and really give them the right information. What are, what are your thoughts about organizing organizations like that under IIUSA or organizations similar to IIUSA? That's a softball. That That's easy. I'm 100% in favor of it. Um, uh, and I say that as the executive director of IIUSA. Now, uh, the caveat is that um, at the end of the day, um, I serve at the pleasure of the membership organization. And um, it does beg questions as to what the nature and direction of the association overall is or should be. And I respect those conversations. Um, you know, my perspective is um, that uh, the more information that our ecosystem has, including the investors, uh, the better off the ecosystem is and the better uh, it can operate. And so, I'm very much in favor of reaching out to investors and providing that information. Um, it doesn't necessarily require us to establish a membership category or any sort of new um, organization. I'm open to those ideas, but I think really what you're getting at is, you know, how can IIUSA um, reach out to and have a receptive audience with investors in China and around the world so that we can share um, the data and the insights that we provide our members on a routine basis. Um, I, I think it's critical that we find a way to do so. I think that it would only benefit uh, the members of the association, because as I said before, um, you know, the strength of the ecosystem relies on on the strength and health and confidence of all of its parts, not just one or two. And um, uh, it would be very interesting to begin to hear uh, in a meaningful and organized way from the investors themselves um, so that IIUSA can continue to make improvements. Um, the, the, the question is, how do we go about finding a way to raise our message and our data and our evidence above the din of everything else um, 
of everything else that's out there. I mean, I, I'm probably going out on a limb here and I shouldn't, but there's some blogger, I don't know what he is, a fellow named EB5 Sir. I, I don't know what his real name is. Um, his, his name is Colin. I've actually had lunch with him in China. He's a, he's a real person. Uh, he's a real person who disseminates real bad information. Um, he's pretty far from the flagpole. I don't know what his sources are, but unfortunately he has a, an incredibly broad audience um, and, and they are receptive to his sensational uh, posts. Unfortunately for his audience, um, a lot of the time, this individual doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he provides that misinformation or that bad information uh, that you're talking about. So the challenge that I have as executive director and the challenge the association has writ large is not necessarily, you know, how do we create a new association or bring people in or what have you. The challenge is how do we get our message out there and above the din of folks like EB5 Sir who feel they have all the answers but simply don't. Um, and, and, and if we're not going to, um, you know, be louder than individuals like that, how can we at the very least be as loud so that an audience of investors or stakeholders abroad can at the very least make decisions for themselves. And they can say, oh, that data that IUSA put out, I don't believe that. I, I believe EB-5, sir. But, but it's been a real challenge for us um, and something that I think um, we need to take a hold of and understand how to do better in the years ahead. And that goes back to this five-year stabilization opportunity we have. You know, we've got five years where we don't need to worry about fighting for our existence. And that when this re redesignation issue is, is resolved, you know, we're going to have a lot of time to build on a stable foundation. And I think that what you raised, Abteen, I think is, is, is definitively one of the things that the association uh, should, should get its head around. And I'm actually eager to talk to our leadership uh, who will be convening for a summit uh, in Milwaukee at the end of August to perhaps discuss that uh, very issue. So, I mean, just, just you know, background on EB5, sir, a guy who, you know, very experienced in EB5. I think he used to do filings. He's an attorney, immigration attorney based out of San Francisco, moved back to China, you know, was a little disgruntled by EB5 and started this 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 blog post. I actually get his blog post, but it's all in Mandarin, so I don't understand it. But, I, you know, I've had lunch with him. He means well. But again, you know, he's getting information that's incorrect and he's not verifying it. And he's putting it out. And, you know, there's other, you know, there's a couple of organizations that are very fo focused on Indian investors. And they mean well. We've had them on the show. Great people. But, you know, there's just all these different telegram groups and rumor mills and, the smallest information spreads like wildfire and they unfortunately repeat some of it. And, you know, just, it's not that these people don't mean well, they all mean well, it's just that they're getting the wrong information and they're not verifying it and they're putting it out. So to, to, to have an organization that could, you know, put the rumor mills or put the rumors to, to rest, I think would be helpful and it would serve all the regional centers and all the investors. You know what, yeah, I, think, the investors, you know what I think would be, they just want a voice. what I think would be a great idea uh, Abteen, um, is for IIUSA and EB5 Sir to find a way to work together. I'd be more than happy to provide um, data and insights and allow uh, that individual to share them. Um, they would be verified and um, from you know a definitive authority in the United States that is working at the table with uh, all stakeholders. Um, I would I would love that opportunity. Uh, and if I, I, I might be able to, uh, to, to, to get it done. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> You're the man. That would be great because, um, you know, I've reached out to Abteen about this several times as well. Some of these organizations that, that like we said, they mean well, um, but these investors crave information. They crave information and they'll try to get it wherever they can. So they do join Telegram groups and Facebook groups and they speak to other investors all around the world who they've never met in person and they listen to lawyers that are posting in the telegram groups and they've never met them either. And so they're just trying to get information wherever they can, especially when they have these long wait times where they go years without hearing anything on their applications. And unfortunately, yes, you know, in these groups, it's, it's not just the groups themselves, but there are disgruntled investors in these groups that are just 
putting out their own information and saying whatever they want to say because they're angry with their process or they're upset. And, and unfortunately, it is kind of like this fear mongering situation. And I have a lot of investors that are constantly messaging me and calling me saying they've heard this and that on this telegram group. And, and I always encourage them not to join these groups and to try to get their information from real sources from like their legal team and their lawyers and IAUSA, you know, posts and things like that. Um, But I guess that's there. And, And I think it'd be great if there was a system where, you know, if IAUSA were to partner with you know, one of these uh, bloggers or, or groups that investors actually listen to or are part of, and they can get real information. I think that would benefit everyone greatly. Yeah, well, I, I am open to those and, relationships for sure. And Aaron, that kind of nice segue to the last part. Uh, you have this amazing gentleman that's on your staff named Lee Lee, who does some amazing work with statistics. And, you know, IUSA, you know, it's so valuable because of all the statistics that you have from member organizations. I just wanted to see if you could briefly just go over some of the stats, you know, how many members, you know, regional center members do you have? You know, some of the statistics of, you know, all the you know, jobs that were created by EB5, just just a few statistics that you have on top of your head that uh, investors could you know, or, or listeners could, could pay attention to. And then where could they go to get more more data? Well, the great thing about having Lee uh on staff uh is that i typically uh, don't task myself with keeping those statistics at the top of my head because lee is always right there uh, and able and able to help Uh, so i apologize for that uh if i if i was to share some statistics i'm sure i would get a quick email from him saying that it's not the most most recent statistics most up to date i can tell you that um you know iusa represents 127 regional centers um, there are many more out there who are who are not members of IUSA, but we still want to provide you know the correct information to all of them and the entire ecosystem. Um, I think the best data report that's out there now is still uh, based on um, census data that goes back uh, several years. Um, but we're talking in 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 the realm of billions of dollars invested into the United States hundreds and hundreds of thousands of U.S. jobs uh, created, tens of thousands of um, immigrant investors successfully completing the program um, and becoming uh, and, and becoming legal permanent residents in the United States. The EB-5 program and the regional center program as its catalyst is hands down a success story from soup to nuts. I mean, there, there's there's no in-between. I mean, the program works. It provides everybody what they're seeking. And it provides the United States with an incredible resource, not just of infused dollars, but of immigrant and their cultures and their know-how and their perspectives. Um, it is a wealth generator uh, a thousand times over from a hundred different perspectives. Um, I know those aren't hardcore data and statistics. I would encourage anybody just to jump onto the IUSA website, iusa.org. There's some fantastic reports there that Lee Lee has developed. The most recent one is an interactive map of the United States based on most recent census data that clearly articulates um, what a targeted employment area is and what a targeted employment area isn't. It's a tremendous tool um, for investors who are doing due diligence as well as regional centers, whether they're a member or not, to evaluate the TEA landscape. And so, and that and and that is the tip of the iceberg of what Lee is able to develop. Um, I'm eternally and incredibly grateful to him and his expertise. And I wish I could rattle off more statistics for you, but um, it is all on the iusa.org. And um, I would encourage anybody who's Got a little time on their hands to jump on and poke around. And if any questions develop, happy to answer. And not just the 50 billion or so in foreign direct investment, but the statistics that none of us know that all these investors also pay billions of dollars in taxes to IRS. And that benefits every state, not just where they're investing. That's true. 
the, the, real quick, the other thing I, I always marvel at is that in, with so many of the economic development projects that use EB-5 investment as part of the capital stack, I just wonder how many of them would happen at all, but for EB-5 being part of the capital stack. And if you, to, you, you withdrew that investment, what happens to the project? I would venture to say that in many instances, it doesn't happen at all. So um, in addition to you know, the raw data and numbers that can be reflected, you know, what is the opportunity cost if you were to bog down the EB-5 system? Um, what is the opportunity cost for so many other uh, potential um, successes? I mean, you're getting some of the best and brightest immigrants from other countries that are already, most cases, successful business operators that are coming here, paying taxes, investing in low-income areas, not just any area, low-income areas, creating jobs for low-income areas at no cost to the taxpayers, plus they're paying taxes. It's a win-win-win-win situation, and we just we just got to make it easier for these people to that want to voluntarily come here and help us build back better. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Sorry, I just okay. <laughs> and Aaron, um, to to join IAUSA, do you have to be a regional center? You know, working. So if someone wanted to join, where could they go join? And yep. is it open to everyone, or do you have to be a regional center? What are the requirements? No requirements. Um, it is open to anybody who um, wants to participate and sees themselves as a stakeholder um, in the EB-5 ecosystem and community. Um, the association was established to represent and support regional centers. Uh, so they are our core um, membership, um, but the regional centers um, understand what, what we started talking about early on, and that is that but for so many other aspects of the EB-5 ecosystem, the regional centers uh, don't live up to their potential. And that includes investors and immigration attorneys and business planners and developers and banks and um, municipal economic development organizations. I mean, when you start talking about economic development and job creation, you, you cast a very wide net and um, our association is open to all of them. So, Aaron, what are the requirements if one wants to join um, leadership in IAUSA? Um, they're easy. Uh, it, it seems I'm a little embarrassed to articulate it, but the biggest requirement to join uh, leadership is uh, your ability and your willingness to make a financial contribution to the association. Um, fortunately, those, those, that, that commitment structure has been reduced. Um, there was a decision by the board of directors to lessen the amount uh, that it would require for folks to join leadership in the hopes that it would attract um, more individuals and companies. Um, the regional centers still carry the lion's share of the, of the water um, in that regard. So um, organizations and individuals who are not regional centers have a significantly less, uh, less of a burden there. Uh, but that's how you do it. Um, uh, it would simply be a matter of outreach to myself, um, Aaron.grau at IAUSA.org, and we could get the ball rolling for you. There, it's worth noting to anybody who might consider it uh, that we will hold our first leadership summit uh, at the end of August this summer. Um, and the conversation that we're going to have will be professionally facilitated um, open to only the leadership circle of IAUSA um, and with the intent of directing development of the association. And one of the issues, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be how do we reach out and communicate effectively with the investor community, that portion of our, of our ecosystem. There'll be other issues to tackle as well, but that's the level of conversation that leadership has at IAUSA. Their voices uh, definitively heard and respected and I would encourage anybody who wants to have that kind of impact to um, to, to drop me a line. Perfect. Aaron, I'm, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that's great. I was going to say, Aaron, thank you so much for being here with us and being our second season. Uh, you know, first season, you were our first guest. Second season, you were our second guest. Thank you so much. But more importantly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you and your staff for all of the work that you've done 
to get us to this point. I know it's been amazing hard work, and I know there's been nights and days that you guys have spent, stayed up and working on this. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for getting this done. Yeah, thank you so much. There have been a handful of nights, but it's all been worth it. I've I've told you both many times before, as soon as I stop having fun, that's when I'm out. And so far, uh, thanks to guys like you and and friends that I've made, uh, this is a very rewarding experience. So thank you for having me. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on the second episode of season two of the Investment Migration Report. And another special thanks to our guest, Aaron Grau of IIUSA for that very informative conversation that I'm sure all our viewers will find very useful. We look forward to welcoming you in future episodes this season. Thank you. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A at stepglobalgroup.com or Abtin Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.